Hello everyone, Rick Cole here once again with the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. We're finally starting to recover from all of our holiday celebrations and we're ready to get back to the news from the hockey world 50 years ago this week. Our news this time around comes from the time period of January 5th to 11th 1970. Now, if we sound a little better this week, it's thanks to a brand spanking new microphone system that my kids got together to give me for Christmas. What an amazing piece of equipment. It makes me feel at least a little more like a professional. As we do every week, we want to mention our sponsors. Newspapers.com helps us a lot. They're the world's largest online newspaper archive. And we're sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company located in beautiful Port Colborne, Ontario. They make some amazing craft beers, many which are crafted from recipes from the first brewery, which was located in Port Colborne in the late 1800s. The staff there actually acquired the original recipes and they make many of their beers from them. They also serve great food, delicious burger and pizza specials, and uh, they have just a great team in their kitchen as well in the brew making staff. If you're in the Niagara region, you got to try the break wall. On last week's show, one of the big news items we discussed was Canada's withdrawal from international ice hockey competition because they were going to be banned from using former and minor professional players on the national team. Now this week, what we're going to do is we're going to examine a reaction from around the world to Canada's radical decision. We're also going to talk about some news involving the on-ice officials of the NHL staff. Uh, We're going to talk about hockey writer Stan Fischler attempting to explain why face masks are bad for goalkeepers. He was serious about this in his article. And in our news and notes, we'll learn about a veteran Bruin player reaching a career milestone. And of course, we're going to have our Hockey Personality of the Week. And this time around, it's a really special one. We got a lot going on, so let's get to it. Now, a little later in the show, uh, we're going to have a story about the NHL referees. Uh, 50 years ago, there were a ton of complaints around the NHL about the officiating. Uh, We talked in stories where the Penguins general manager, Jack Riley, went to the NHL about referee John Ashley. Punch him, lack of the Maple Leafs, had been uh, famous over the years for complaining about Art Scove and Vern Buffy. And it, it hasn't gotten any different in present day. In fact, as, as we watch now, 50 years later, uh, sometimes I think the officiating has gotten a lot worse than it was back then. And I, I really always wondered over the years why the officiating didn't meet the standard set by the players. These are the best players in the world. And yet, gotta wonder, Are these the best people they could possibly find to officiate these games? Now, I was always interested in refereeing. I tried it a few times and gave it up, uh, mainly because I found it was too much like my day job. Now, for those of you who don't know, I had a 30-year career in policing and investigations, and being a referee was, well, at least to me, too much like being a cop. And who needs to do their day job in their recreational time? Certainly I didn't. But back in back uh, 
during my career, I taught for a few years at the Ontario Police College. Uh, One of the officers who was on a senior course I was instructing, I became good friends with. Hockey people seem to gravitate toward each other. This fellow was a former professional player who spent some time in the World Hockey Association and other minor leagues, and he later became a police officer in his hometown and a coach as well in their minor hockey system. He told me about an NHL referee he coached when the guy was a minor player, and this guy was thought to be the next big thing, uh, the great white hope, so to speak. The officer told me he was a wonderful hockey player, but there was only one problem with the kid. He had million-dollar legs and a 10-cent head. The kid was one of the best skaters he's ever seen, but his problem was he couldn't think the game fast enough to compete at a high level although he had all the physical attributes. So, of course, what did he do? He became a referee because he wasn't good enough to be a player. Now, I would posit that this is likely the situation with many, many, almost most officials in in the big leagues. They are almost all failed players. After all, if you can't play well enough to be with the best, then why not officiate? Why would you officiate? If you're good enough to play with the best players, you're going to make millions as a player in hockey's big league these days, substantially, substantially less as an official. But that's why they go there. They can't get there. And many times they possess all the physical characteristics. They're just unable to think the game well enough. They're wonderful skaters, great physical specimens, but mentally they can't keep up with the game as it's required at the highest level. So they become referees, and unfortunately, they still can't keep up with the game. Makes sense, doesn't it? Now we move on to the reaction to Canada's withdrawal from international ice hockey competition. And it was a little varied, but you could see where the lines were drawn on who supported the decision and who didn't. Uh, first, we talk about uh, Canadian coach Jackie McLeod. Now, Jackie was so nervous about this, he stayed up all night waiting for some news from that meeting in Geneva, Switzerland, where the decision about whether Canada could use professional players would be made. Of course, the news came down that Canada would be forbidden the use of these players, thanks to a goofy, goofy decision by the International Olympic Committee, which said that any player who played against a professional would lose their amateur status, even if they weren't professional themselves. They couldn't even compete against them. Now, this was completely incongruous. It didn't make sense because tournaments in Russia where Canadian professionals played affected not bit, not one bit, any of the participants in those tournaments. But it was disappointing nonetheless. Uh, Two players, actually three players for Canada, were asked for their immediate reaction about this uh, story. Terry O'Malley and Barry McKenzie were two of the 
remaining original players from the original national team in 1964 when they established the concept of a, of a national Canadian team. O'Malley said it was a great letdown, but it wasn't a complete surprise. You could see it coming. Personally, Terry says, I feel more deeply for the younger guys. They played so well, and now they won't have a chance to compete in the tournament, a tournament that was to be held on their home ice. Now, McKenzie is a teammate of O'Malley in the Memorial Cup winning St. Michael's teams in 1961, said he's going to remain with the national team, unlike O'Malley, who is probably going to go back to school. McKenzie, you see, is still under contract to the Minnesota North Stars, and he'll probably just end up wherever the North Stars feel like they want to send him. McKenzie said, we're all disappointed, but really it's nothing new. Canada always gets shafted by the Europeans. Another uh, member of the national team, one of the more high-profile members, is Fran Huck. He rejected offers from the Montreal Canadiens in 1966 to stay with the Canadian national team. He said that he didn't really expect it would go this far. He thought that the meeting would produce some sort of compromise that would allow Canada to continue. Now, Huck will probably leave the national team, and most people feel he'll follow a career in the pros. Now, one of the people who probably had the most to lose by Canada's decision is Mayor Stephen Yuba uh, of Winnipeg. Now, his city was to host the majority of the games in the World Championships in March, and it looks like they're going to have to refund about $300,000 worth of advanced ticket sales to those who purchased them. But Mr. Juba uh, was very supportive of the Canadian decision. He said, I often wondered how long Canada would tolerate the international hockey situation. If any awards are to be made, you should be recipient of a gold medal because your statement will bring about fair play and consideration to our Canadian athletes in the future. And that he was talking to Canadian Health Minister John Monroe, who was explaining the reasons for Canada withdrawing from the tournament. Charles Hay is the president of Hockey Canada, and he wasn't surprised at all that the uh, International Ice Hockey Federation took a, uh, advantage, I guess you could say, of that decision by the International Olympic Committee. Charles said, if we had cleared this hurdle, something else would have come up. I don't think Canada would have been allowed to hold the tournament under any circumstances, mainly because the Russians and the Czechs didn't want to come to Canada and have to face players that are probably just as good as theirs. Swedish newspapers were surprisingly supportive of Canada, and why wouldn't they be? They benefited greatly, especially the city of Stockholm, to where the World Championships for 1970 have been moved. But the Swedes demanded the resignation of Bunny Ahern as the president of the International Ice Hockey Federation. A Swedish sports editor, Martin Lehman, wrote, Now it should be really time for Ahern to take the consequences of an exceptionally devious career and resign. He has declared himself to be incompetent. We can't disagree with that at all. 
Now back on this side of the pond, National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell expressed his disappointment as well. He said, I am disappointed, but we can't keep backing down to them. They launched an undertaking last July, that's meaning the IIHF, and they've obviously backed down due to pressure from the International Olympic Committee. David Molson, president of uh, the Montreal Canadiens and a director of Hockey Canada, didn't mince words either when he heard the news. Canada should have made this move eight to ten years ago. And that's quite a statement from Molson because the Montreal Forum is going to have to return $16,000 in advance ticket sales and they have to try and fill up ten days in booking its schedule. There was a little bit of dissent over here in Canada, but that was uh, to be expected, especially from Winnipeg, where hockey fans had to be bitterly disappointed at this news. Uh, Morris Smith, he's the sports editor of the Winnipeg Free Press, felt that the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association and Hockey Canada sold Winnipeg in the province of Manitoba down the river with their withdrawal from international. Uh, he said there's more than meets the eye in Canada's decision and uh, that their story would probably come out in the future. And he said, we're not so sure that had Canada been allowed to augment its team with nine professionals, the outcome of the tournament would have been any different. So there's really no reason for them to retire from, from that competition. Now, as expected, the Russians, the Czechs, and the International Olympic Committee thought Canada was dead wrong in, in moving. Uh, the Russian newspaper Pravda reported that uh, the official statement from the Russian Ice Hockey Federation was this. Neither the USSR Hockey Federation nor the Swedish Hockey Federation nor those of dozens of other states could sacrifice the sacred principles of the Olympic movement for the sake of Canadian egotism. Unbelievable, the Canadian egotism. Canadians just want to play on a level playing field. Of course, that's something foreign to the Russians. It was foreign to the Russians 50 years ago, and it's foreign to the Russians today. They don't ever want to play on a level playing field. They always have to have something in the game that gives them an edge. From Czechoslovakia, the... Uh, Communist Party paper Rue Pravo said this, Canada herself will suffer and that they will never realize anything good from this decision and hockey will suffer in Canada for years to come. However, in Finland, they really did side with Canada. The newspaper Ilta Sanomat said, Hockey would have lost nothing if Avery Brundage had carried out his threats to bar the sport from the Olympics. On the contrary, the loss would have been much greater for the Olympic Games than for the sport of hockey. It's unnecessary to speak of pure amateurs in any country anymore, said the newspaper. Their point? Most of these athletes coming out of communist countries are not amateurs. We all know that. We know the Russian uh, Red Army players are classed as members of the Red Army and soldiers. But for 11 months of the year, all they do is play hockey and they make a decent living. What do they do the other month of the year? Nah, it's not army drills. They vacation on the Black Sea. And what did uh, 
Avery Brundage, the president of the International Olympic Committee, have to say about this? After all, it was his decision or his committee's decision that was barring all the players who might play against professionals from Olympic competition. Well, Brundage took the very brave stand of saying, this is a hockey matter. I've got no uh, comment on it. We don't have anything to do with this decision. But if you listen to Bunny Ahern, they have everything to do with this decision. These guys can't even get their lies straight. We'll leave the last statement on this particular subject to Toronto Maple Leaf President C. Stafford Smythe. He put the blame squarely on Bunny Ahern exactly where it belongs. Smythe says Ahern caused the whole thing. He was trying to preserve his own empire. Looks like he probably did, at least on that side of the Atlantic. He isn't very popular over here in North America these days, though, is he? Now, with all the 1969-70 season complaints about officials, Stan Fischler took it upon himself to write a story about the referees or officials union, association, whatever you want to call it, and other issues as addressed by NHL referee-in-chief Scotty Morrison. Now, Scotty said that he expects the NHL Referees Association will try and make another bid for official recognition, this time at the All-Star Game January 20th, which is being held in St. Louis. Morrison says that he opposed the unionization of referees and linesmen, but he won't, as they did in baseball, press for the expulsion of the leader of their association and in the nhl that is referee bill friday he's head of the referees group now baseball umpires were uh, ostracized by major league baseball when they tried to form a union and a couple of them were even dismissed although later on they were reinstated by major league baseball morrison says i'm still convinced the problems of referees can be handled by the league. I'd like the official situation to be continued in that way without an association. Well, of course, Scotty would. He runs that uh, uh, staff with an iron fist and he wants to continue to do so. He doesn't believe in being fair and it really makes you wonder, doesn't it? If the league doesn't want to be fair to its employees, how can they expect their employees, the officials, to be fair to the teams during a game? Now, the whole issue has caused some uh, ill feelings within the referee community. Uh, John Ashley and Art Scove, two very veteran officials, and by the way, two who are most complained about by the NHL teams, have refused to join the union. Whereas Bill Friday and Vern Buffy, both are outspoken members of the group that wants the association. Linesmen Matt Pavlich and Neil Armstrong have also refused to become association members. Now Morrison knows this causes ill feelings and he told uh, he told his staff that he doesn't really care what they do off the ice as long as their on ice performance is not uh, noticed or affected by this antagonism toward the partners that they should be trying to get along with. Morrison even said that he thought that Friday's leadership role in the officials association has improved him as an official. 
Morrison said because he's president of the association, Friday appears to be working harder and working better. Morrison also revealed one more kind of curious situation with the referees. Referee John D'Amico, he he lives in Toronto, he is going to be demoted to linesman as part of a plan, allegedly, to contribute to his development as an NHL referee. Now, what's really surprising is John D'Amico himself had requested the change, according to Morrison. John D'Amico, if anyone ever met him, he's a perfectionist. He holds himself to a much higher standard than anyone else. And he's really been uh, bothered by upcoming games, much in the same way as St. Louis goalie Glenn Hall, who for years was known to be extremely nervous before games to the point of actually vomiting right before games would start in the Chicago dressing room. Uh, John is affected in much the same way, and he told a friend, I don't really need this aggravation. Morrison said that D'Amico has all the attributes of a good referee, including probably uh, what I would think is one of the most important. The players accept him as a good referee. Morrison also talked about the best refereeing prospect that the league has right now. It's a fellow by the name of Brian Lewis, who's from Cooksville, Ontario. He refereed in the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series the last few years, and this week he was scheduled to receive his first NHL start. Morrison said Lewis is big. He's about 6'1". He's got a good appearance, whatever that means, and a good control of the game, and he's not easily flustered. We'll see if this uh, Brian Lewis fella can maybe stick around more than just a few games in the NHL like so many others they've tried but just couldn't make it. Okay, so Stan Fischler's at it again. Now, remember a couple weeks ago, we spoke about Stan writing an article, Why Helmets are bad for hockey players. Well, he's at it again this week in the sporting news. Sometimes I think he just writes this stuff. He doesn't mean it. He's just doing it to gain some notoriety with uh, an American public who really don't know much about hockey. This time, Stan's column is entitled, Who Needs a Face Mask? Stan says one of the most overrated pieces of equipment in sports is the mask worn by hockey goalies. Stan says that one of the most, the strangest individuals, or it's strange, I don't know if you'd call him that, uh, but one of the bravest ones is Eddie Jackman, goalie of the Rangers, who at this point in his career was not wearing a mask. Stan says, while nervous Nellies and assorted know-it-alls keep bellowing that the NHL should make masks, not to mention helmets, mandatory pieces of equipment, Jockman is living proof that the idea is so much malarkey. Fischler repres- uh, refers to a goalie, minor league goalie named Claude Dufour, who was injured while wearing a mask and his eye injury was so severe that he had to retire from the game. Fischler says because of this... Nobody should wear a mask. Stan doesn't mention goaltenders that may have been saved by the mask. But of course, that's a fact that has nothing to do with Stan's opinion. So why let the facts get in the way of a good story? 
Now, Jockerman tells uh, Fischler that goalies generally find that the eye slits and the masks, they're too small. So they cut them out, they file them down, they make them a little bigger so they can see better, and that's what causes the injuries. And he says that masks cut down on goalies' effectiveness. Now, Fischler says that, not Eddie. He says the goalie's peripheral vision uh, is cut down by the mask even when they file out and enlarge the eye holes. Now, Jockerman did tell Fischler a mask would hurt my style because I'd like to shoot the puck a lot. He says if I was wearing a mask, it would take a second or two to find the puck that could be fatal. Well, it might not be fatal. It might inhibit his game a little bit. What Stan Fischler and Ed Jockerman don't mention is a couple goalies by the name of Terry Sawchuk and Jacques Plant. When you're talking about the greatest goaltenders of all time, you always mention Terry Sawchuk, and most people will mention Plant as well. Plant, of course, is the father of the modern-day goalie mask, meaning modern first to wear in the last half of the 20th century. Sawchuk's best hockey is arguably played after he donned a mask late in his career, and Jacques Plant was spectacular after he started wearing the mask with the Montreal Canadiens. Can you imagine a goaltender going out on the ice in 2019 without a mask? Of course not. This was just something, another thing written by Stan Fischler to probably raise his profile before an American public that really didn't give much of a damn about hockey at the time. And now we get to this week's news and notes. Lots to talk about this week. Uh, In injury news and player uh, being not available news, the Leafs have lost young defenseman Jim Dory for at least eight weeks. He suffered torn ligaments in his right knee during a game at the beginning of the week, or should say last weekend, in Pittsburgh. They placed a leg in a cast, and he's going to be gone, as we said, for two months minimum. Jim has had actually a pretty good year for the Maple Leafs so far. He has five goals, nine assists for 14 points in 33 games with Toronto this season. Now, Montreal Canadiens management has been trying to talk Gump Worsley to coming back and playing for the Montreal Voyageurs in the American Hockey League. But Gump is not interested. He's adamant. He's through with hockey, or at least through with the Montreal Canadiens. It's known that the Canadiens are actively trying to arrange a trade that would send Worsley to another team. The Habs would prefer to it to be in the Western Division so that he can't come back and hurt them at a crucial stage in the playoffs. You remember last week we spoke about uh, right winger Ron Snell being called up to the Penguins. They thought Snell would uh, inject a little bit of life in in their very uh, mediocre offense, but Ron wasn't able to do it. After three games, he didn't show the Penguins enough. They sent him back to Baltimore and they recalled forward George Swarbrick from the Clippers and he's going to take Snell's place on the Pittsburgh roster. Now, it seemed there was an awful lot of news concerning the Boston Bruins this week. 
The Bruins are expected to run away with the league by a lot of observers before this season, but they haven't really done that yet. They continue to be the subject of a lot of trade rumors around the league, depending on uh, what reporters you're reading and listening to. General Manager Milt Schmidt of the Bruins admitted to Toronto Star sports writer Milt Dunnell, one of the best of all time, by the way, that he's looking for a mobile defenseman, the type of puck-moving rearguard who would be a perfect complement to superstar Bobby Orr. Bill White of the Kings, who's been rumored to be going to the Bruins for ages, is exactly the kind of guy that Milt would like to get. And it's possible, even though rumors are starting to lessen about a three-way deal between the Kings, Bruins, and Philadelphia Flyers, it's still possible that the Bruins might manage to pry White away from the Kings. And wouldn't that make them impressively uh, strong for the upcoming playoffs? A Bruin veteran accomplished a very nice career milestone this week. Left winger Johnny Busick, one of the best Bruins of all time, scored his 300th goal in a game against the Seals in Oakland on January 7th, won by the Bruins 6-1. to Here's a clip from that game and Bobby sco- or Johnny scoring his historic goal. Intercepted by Lorenz Busick, shot stop, goal! And the Chief has scored his 300th goal. Johnny Bissick has scored his 300th career goal. And that's the cause of the celebration as the Bruins pour off the bench. The whole Bruins team comes out to congratulate the Chief. And it finally came. He had 281 goals starting the season. And for Busick... That's his 19th goal of the year. The Bruins were involved in another crazy game this week. That was uh, against the Maple Leafs on January 10th. And Bobby Orr was the center of the craziness in this game, which was Ed won by Toronto 4-3. to Bobby scored two goals in the game. Unfortunately, one of them was on his own net. Uh, he deflected a puck, actually basically shot it, past goalie Jerry Cheevers of the Bruins, but he came right back and got a goal of his own on the Leafs goalie Bruce Gamble, and we have a couple highlights of how that all took place during the game from the Bruins telecast. Right out in front of the goal between Cheevers and Or, down on the ice, couldn't believe it. Watch it again and you'll see what I mean. There's Keon. As Spear goes with him. Out front. Bobby tried to clear it and went right between Jerry's pads. Between his skates into the net. Head to center ice. Lorenz to Westfall. Back to Lorenz. Shot into the side of the net. Cashman trying to control it. Out front. Gets by Westfall. Four drive. Goal! Still with the Bruins, uh, Derek Sanderson's hurt again, and we're wondering what's going on there. In fact, hockey fans all over the place are wondering what's going on there. Sanderson, when the Bruins last week were out west with Los Angeles and California games, was out of the lineup, and no one was either saying or knew why. 
Uh, he was restricted for a couple days to his hotel room at the Edgewater Inn in Oakland. And Kevin Walsh of the Boston Globe contacted Derek and asked him what was going on. Derek said, I can't move. I spent all day, which was Sunday, in bed. I don't know what's wrong. The reports are that it's a groin injury, but there are other reports that no one's really sure. General Manager Milt Schmidt was so exasperated by Sanderson's condition, he packed him up on a plane, sent him back to Boston, and told team medical staff and doctors at the usual Boston hospital that they use to see what the heck is going on with Derek Sanderson. We'll have to stay tuned to this one and see why Sanderson has been missing so much time. And it's now time of the year where teams start to put out promotional material on uh, players on their teams they feel are great candidates to be the NHL Rookie of the Year. Chicago Blackhawks started early. They have two young guys that are both worthy of consideration for the award. Young defenseman Keith Magnuson, who came to the NHL out of the American Collegiate System, and Tony Esposito. Tony is the Blackhawks goalie this year that they acquired in the draft from Montreal during the offseason. And Tony is also a product of the American college hockey system. The Rangers are pushing Billy Fairbairn. He's out of Western Canada. He's a right winger who's hard-nosed, tough, and has a bit of a scoring eye. And Flyers have young center Bobby Clark, also from Western Canada, and he has been a complete leader as a rookie with that team. A little more late news this week out of Pittsburgh. Now, the Penguins have been having an awful time this year. Some of their crowds are almost as bad as the Oakland Seals. That's bad. The man who is most instrumental in bringing NHL hockey to Pittsburgh is Senator Jack McGregor. Well, Mr. McGregor left his post as president of the Pittsburgh Hockey Club, and they still haven't replaced him. The speculation around the Penguins these days is that general manager Jack Riley will be named as president of the team. No word on whether he will just be kicked upstairs or whether he'll retain his general manager portfolio as well. And we'll uh, keep an eye on this one. The Penguins need something because the fans certainly aren't coming out to what the team is selling in Pittsburgh these days. Still no news out of Vancouver as to who's going to be the top hockey man in that organization. One city newspaper has taken to run in a daily countdown of how long the team has been in the hands of the new owners without an announcement as to a new hockey man to run the organization. GM Joe Crozier is still in the running according to team ownership and he's the popular choice among Vancouverites but I get the impression if he hasn't been named to the post by now the owners principally President Tom Scallon may have their eye on someone else now that someone else could be Bud Poyle who was recently fired as the general manager of the Philadelphia Flyers uh, near the end of this week Poyle met with Medicore President Scallon but no uh, announcement was made at the time. Scallon would really like to have gotten Punch Imlac, but they were having trouble getting their heads around the trouble they had with Punch when he sold his stock in the Western Hockey League Canucks. In a related story reported by Hans Tanner, the great hockey writer for the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, 
Chronicle, he says that there's a strong possibility that the new owners of the Canucks will sell their Rochester AHL farm team. Now, the Canucks farm team in Rochester was part of the deal that was made to sell the Western Hockey League franchise to Medicore, who of course will own the NHL team. Tanner's story says that the Canucks will sell the Rochester team to the new Buffalo NHL club that's going to be run by Punch Imlac. Their story suggests that Joe Crozier will end up once again as the boss at Rochester working for his old pal Imlac. He'll be the general manager coach at the American League team. Now Crozier was for years the GM coach of the Rochester club and led that franchise to several AHL championships. Now this week with all the talk of mid-season all-star teams, which we'll talk about in a second, Wally Cross of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch asked Bob Plager, one of the roughest, toughest, meanest hombres in the NHL, for his all-dirtiest team made up of players in the league right now. Now Plager said that this these players are the dirtiest but are still good hockey players. They're not just fighters or goons. He picks Gary Smith of the Oakland Seals as the goaltender, with the defenseman being Noel Picard, his teammate with the Blues, and the Seals' Carol Vadney, whom Plager calls one of the sneaky dirtiest guys around. The center, another shocker for me, Henry Richard of the Montreal Canadiens. Henry will give you the stick as well as looking at you, and he wants to make sure being small, nobody takes advantage. The right wing, Ted Irvin of the Kings, who only has a few minutes and penalties this year, but... Plager says you have to keep your eye on Irvin at all times. Now, in present day, we find out, of course, that Ted Irvin's son was Chris Jericho, the ref, the uh, wrestler. The left winger on the all-dirty team? Well, that was a slam dunk. John Ferguson of the Montreal Canadiens. Plager also had a really interesting quote about the Philadelphia Flyers tough guy, Reggie Fleming. Plager told Cross, oh, by the way, make sure you say that I didn't mention Reg Fleming of the Phil of the Philadelphia Flyers. He's the most overrated tough guy in the history of hockey. And the midseason all-star teams were announced this week, and we have them for you here. In West, the goaltender Jacques Plante of the St. Louis Blues. On defense, another couple of Blues, Al Arbor and Barkley Plager. The center, Phil Goyette of the Blues, Ab McDonald of the Blues on left wing, but cracking that all St. Louis lineup on right side, Bill Goldsworthy of the Minnesota North Stars. In the east, Eddie Jackman of the Rangers is the netminder. The defense, Bobby Orr of the Bruins, Jim Nielsen of New York. The center is Phil Esposito of Boston, and the Bruins also have the left winger, Johnny Busick. The right winger, who else but the inimitable Gordie Howe, who was named to an all-star team for the 21st time. Bobby Orr, by the way, was the only unanimous pick to this all-star, all-star squad. And now it's time for our Hockey Person of the Week, and this one is pretty special. It's New York Rangers defenseman Jim Nielsen, and when you hear this story, you'll understand why we chose Jim this week. It was January 6th, 1970, and 
Gerald Eskenazi of the New York Times covered the New York Rangers for the paper was a practice and noticed that Jim Nielsen wore a hockey glove on his right hand and his left hand was heavily bandaged and he approached Jim and asked what was going on. Jim, in typically modest fashion, didn't really want to talk about the incident, but finally he opened up. He said that... uh, at 1.45 a.m. that morning at his home in Long Beach, Long Island, he smelled a funny odor. Now, Jim hadn't been able to sleep at all that night because he'd had a tooth extracted that day and he was in a lot of pain. So he was still awake, but he noticed uh, some lights dancing from his five-year-old daughter's bedroom. Now, Jim knew that he was the last one that had gone to bed and he remembered turning out all the lights in the home. So Jim got up, he shouted to his wife, he ran to the bedroom and he saw his daughter's bed in flames. She was still sleeping, oblivious to what was going on around her. Jim grabbed the the daughter out of the bed, he gave it to his wife and she scrambled out of the house as quickly as she could. Jim, however, wasn't satisfied with just having saved his daughter. He tried to roll the blanket and the mattress into a ball to put out the flames, and in that process, he severely burned his left hand. He finally knew that was a a fruitless task, and he got out of the house without any further injury. Jim told Gerald Eskenazi, It's a good thing I had the tooth out because I couldn't sleep soundly. I was tossing and turning but lying there awake. Luckily for everyone... Jim had decided, just before going to bed, against taking a sleeping pill. Now, the fire started because of a short circuit in the wiring in the daughter's bedroom. Firemen arrived very quickly and and put the blaze out, and Nielsen was the only one injured, and he was treated at a local hospital. Of course, on the scene was Nielsen's defense partner these days, Brad Park. Park looked at Nielsen and said, ah, you just didn't want to go to Pittsburgh. Nielsen looked back deadpan and said, Pittsburgh's a good place to leave, not to go to. Now, if you're not familiar with Jim Nielsen, he was a great hockey player of native Native Canadian descent. He was a crunching body checker and who played hard, but he played fair. Uh, his physical presence was feared on the ice, but he was not considered anything of a dirty player at all. He was actually a gentleman. Uh, he never had more than 95 penalty minutes in a season, didn't often engage in fights at all. He played over a thousand NHL games in a 17 year professional career. He never played in the minor leagues other than a brief stint at the very beginning of his career with Kingston or sorry, the Kitchener-Waterloo Beavers of the Eastern Professional Hockey League, which was the precursor to the Central Professional Hockey League. Most people know that Jim Nielsen, whose nickname was the Chief, was half Native Canadian. His mother was a Cree Indian, but few people knew that Jim's other half was Danish. His father was Danish, and he was a mink rancher. Again, a lot of people don't know this, But because of family difficulties, young Jim and his sister ended up in an orphanage. Uh, Jim uh, 
actually spent the early part of his life there, which may have been a break according to him because he said he didn't have to stay on a reservation. Now, Jim said that he had no formal training. He played junior for Prince Albert Mintos of the Saskatchewan Junior League. And as we mentioned later, graduated to the Eastern Pro League with Kitchener-Waterloo. Ranger scouts saw him there. They brought him to the big team. And the coach of the Rangers at that time was the great Doug Harvey, who was playing coach. He took young Nielsen under his wing and Jim credits Doug Harvey, Hall of Famer Doug Harvey, for turning him into the proficient NHL defenseman that he turned out to be. Jim was a really strong skater and he was a big guy for that era, 6'2", 205 pounds, but very, very agile, making it hard for players to get around him and he had a really good poke check. He also had a really good understanding of the offensive part of hockey. He wasn't just a defensive specialist, and he even played on left wing because he was so good up front. And guess what? Jim scored his first NHL goal as a forward. That's our uh, Hockey Personality of the Week. Very deserving guy this week, Jim Nielsen. So what did we learn this week, boys and girls? Well, we learned a lot. We learned there's lots of support for Canada's Canada's decision to leave international hockey competition. But there are also those that disagree. But those that disagree are the usual suspects. The Russians, the Czechs, the International Ice Hockey Federation, and anybody else running sport that doesn't want to see Canada do well. We learned that Jim Nielsen of the New York Rangers is a true hero in every sense of the world. And we learned that there's one thing that hockey people agree on these days. Bobby Orr is the best defenseman there is in the 1969-70 season. And even when Bobby has a rare bad game, he's still pretty darn good. Now we'll return next week with more news and notes from the world of hockey. Some of the stories we're working on include what the new Vancouver NHL team will be called as if we really didn't know, but we are not going to tell you till next week. We'll also get an official announcement on the new Buffalo general manager coach, but we know who that's going to be. And we're going to talk a bit about the Kurt Flood case. Now remember, Kurt Flood is the baseball player who challenged the baseball reserve clause, which binds a player to a team for life. The case takes an interesting twist when a prominent baseball star everybody knows of says he's going to withdraw, he will quit from the Baseball Players Association if the reserve clause is abolished. We'll talk about who that is and what the ramifications could be towards the case. We'll have a lot a lot more for next week as well. Now, the 50 Years Ago on Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Our intro music comes to us courtesy of the Rural Alberta Advantage, and other musical pieces are by Andy Cole as well. Our stories are compiled with files from the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course the many publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at 1969HockeyNews and on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago in Hockey banner. We also have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com, and we give news on the Twitter feed and the uh, podcast as well. And if you like good music, 
good conversation, I recommend you listen to a podcast called Let's Write a Song by Andy Cole, who produces this podcast. Every week, Andy and a guest have some interesting conversations, and they also write and perform a completely new musical piece during the show. It's a lot of fun and something I think everybody should have listened to. So thanks so much for joining us this week, everyone. We'll see you next time. When the ice breaks.